I have a daughter and a son-in-law and five grandchildren in Fairbanks, Alaska. And so <clears throat> I like to, we like to go up and see him, and I like to go up, and he takes me hunting. And, and so I have a credit card. It's Alaska. Um, uh, it earns miles, so I can fly up there with the miles. And so what we do is we try to pay every bill we can with our Alaska credit card, and then I pay it off every month. I have a fairly low max on it, and uh, so we pay it off, pay it off, and do it. And, but here a couple of years ago, I took, Patty and I took a couple from our church, could be you, I can't remember. Uh, actually, I think I can remember, but uh, uh, we went out to dinner, and I invited you to go with us, and we were buying, and, uh, and so we had a great dinner, went to a nice restaurant, the food was awesome, the fellowship was great, got to the end, you know how they bring the bill, and I took my credit card out and gave it to them, and she took off with it, and she came back and she says, Mr. Duke, we have a problem, your credit card is maxed out. I don't know how it happened, but I didn't have any other, that was all I had, and I didn't have any money, and so it was like, uh, could you pay the bill? <laughs> I mean, that was really embarrassing. That was, I mean, that was terrible. I was so embarrassed. Let me tell you of a situation that's even worse, is for you to get to the end of your life and stand before Jesus, and he says to you, I don't have a clue who you are. Uh, depart from me. And you thought you were in. You really did. You thought you'd taken care of everything and that you were in. You were in the family of God. You were going to heaven. And now you get this news from Jesus. Now, I was able the week after the dinner uh, to get some money and uh, see him and pay him back. He didn't want to, but I said, no, I, I just, I've got to do this. It's, I'd feel really dumb if I didn't. So I paid him, paid the credit card off. I mean, I was able to fix that embarrassment. Well, when you get to the end of your life and stand before Jesus and he says, I don't have a clue who you are. I don't know who you are. Depart from me. There's nothing you can do about it then. It's way too late and uh, you're stuck forever separated from Christ. So how would that happen? We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians. We've been looking at it, and the, uh, the quality of these individuals was that they had a genuine faith. There's a lot of people who don't. They have a pseudo-faith. They have a pseudo-salvation. That is, they think they're saved, but they're not. When uh, A number of years ago, we went to Sierra Leone, West Africa, and I preached a revival service. It was really cool. They built a stage, and the, and the boards were, uh, they were not very substantial. Their building wasn't very uh, good, and I stood on it. I was pretty sure I was going to fall through at any moment, but I made it through, and they don't have much electricity. They had a little generator running. They had one light bulb over my head, and uh, all the bugs that they have in Africa gathered to that light, and so they were flying all around my head and in my eyes. Every time I took a breath, they got in my mouth, but I managed to preach a really good sermon. At least I thought I did, and one of the African pastors came up to give the invitation, and when he gave the invitation, everybody that was there all came forward. I'm thinking, Billy Graham, step aside. And uh, I mean, they did, whew. and so I started meeting people that came up and praying with them, and pretty soon I thought, I think something's not right here. I discovered as I visited with each individual that what they were wanting was to be rich. And they had this idea that Americans were all rich, and the reason was because they were Christians. 
And so they were going to become a Christian so they could become rich like us. So the question is, when it's all done and said, and they're a week later, two weeks later, and Jesus were to come back and, and they stood before him, what would they hear? Sorry, bud, I don't have a clue who you are. And so there's this sort of nonsense in our country that you can just believe in God. Even those who believe more than just in God often have simply an intellectual assent to his, some historical fact and assume that that's what uh, being a believer is, being a Christian is. And so it's going to be a sad day for many who get to the end of their life and find out that, uh, see, God is God and heaven is his and uh, he makes the rules and we need to make sure we understand what they are. Uh, so that we can live with him forever and ever and ever. Let me read to you again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. They themselves report about us what kind of re reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So if you have your notes, number one, those in the church of the Thessalonians believed the gospel with great faith and conviction with great faith and conviction. They believed the gospel with great faith and conviction. So I believe in Abraham Lincoln. What's that mean? I believe he was born and lived and was a president of our country and uh, did significant things. I know all the information about his life and historically what transpired. I believe in Abraham Lincoln. So to believe in Jesus, believe the gospel, is a lot more than simply believing in information, in uh, historical facts. 1 Thessalonians 1.5, again, our gospel did not come to you in word only, in word only. That is just information, just uh, theology, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, full conviction, full, that means maxed out conviction. Uh, so let me go over the gospel. We've done it before, but just in case you forgot, you've got five fingers for a reason. Uh, gospel has basically five points. First, Jesus is God. He is God, equal with the Father, as powerful as the Father, as all-knowing as the Father, always existed with the Father, always will. Jesus Christ is one with God the Father. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Isaiah 9, 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, 
Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. John 10, Jesus speaking, he said, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. We're like one person, we're equal. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For good works we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. God uh, declared Jesus to be his son equal with him, and Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one, claim to be God. B, Jesus became flesh. He emptied himself, stripped himself of all that he was as God, entered this world and lived just like we do, experienced all that we experience, something only God could do. And he did that because he wants us to become like him. He became like us so that we might become like him and live with him forever. John 1:14. the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, that we might become sons and daughters of God. Philippians 2, 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, stripped himself, taking the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. Hebrews 2.14, since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. I'm memorizing the book of Hebrews, and I'm, uh, this particular section here, chapter 2, that little phrase, he himself likewise also partook of the same. I don't know why, but I have a, I miss that one every time. Uh, I have this little thing on my phone, and so I type in the first letter of each word, and when I get it wrong, it beeps at me. I get to this section, it goes, busy, 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 <clears throat> but I'm going to get it. You see, it's he himself likewise also partook of the same. Uh, he became exactly like us, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren, that's us, in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 4, 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which we have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. Third point of the gospel, Jesus lived a perfect life. He didn't sin not even once, not in thought, not in attitude, not even an itsy-bitsy sin. He lived a perfect, holy life uh, all of the years he was here. The devil poured out everything he could he tried to get Jesus to sin. He tempted him more than any other individual. He knew if he could get Jesus to sin that he owned us forever. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Hebrews 4, 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that is, he became our sin. God put our sins on him, looked at him as if he actually did them. He made him who knew no sin, who had never sinned, to be our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Fourth point, Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty of our sins. He took our place. While he was nailed there, God took the sins of every individual that 
first person to the last person, gathered them up like only God could do, put them on Jesus and looked at him as if he did them all and then punished his son for the sins we've committed. Uh, he took our place, he paid our price, and he died on a cross. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. And in the fifth point, he died on the cross, was buried, rose again. Rose again three days later. He's alive today. That's the gospel. Jesus is God. He became flesh. He lived a perfect sinless life. He never sinned, not even once. While he was nailed to that cross, your sins and mine were put on him. And then he paid the price and died, was, and he rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, unless you believed in vain. So how is it you could do that? The gospel that you would believe in vain, that is, it really doesn't take. Uh, it doesn't change anything. So the key word is your sin. So the Sierra Leoneans came up not because of their sin, but because of their poverty, because of their misery, because of their difficult life, and they wanted Jesus to fix their life and make it uh, good. And so when we talk about believing in vain, whether your faith takes, whether it changes, is what motivates a person to come to Jesus. Uh, and the sin that we have in our life is the big deal. That's the issue. And the very beginning when the plan was formulated by the Trinity to add to the family, He created us in His image and in His likeness. He needed to give us the freedom to choose. And they knew that when, once that freedom was given, sin would become an issue for all of us. They needed to fix that problem. And so Jesus came died and fixed the problem, but we come and we receive what he's done, but our coming needs to be driven and motivated by our conviction of sin, our full, deep conviction of sin. If there's any other reason, then we believe in vain. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Number two, the Thessalonians' faith in the gospel was not just mere intellectual assent to facts and information, but they were being transformed. They were being transformed, changed from the inside out by the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. And so the gospel has supernatural power from God to save us from the penalty of sin, that is hell, it also has supernatural power from God to save us from the power of sin as we live our life now. Uh, the gospel uh, is powerful, but we need to understand exactly what's being said and what it's about. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 again, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, just information, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, with full conviction. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Paul says it is the power of God, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
Number three, the gospel becomes powerful to transform us when we are deeply convicted about our sins. So the problem in our country, and we uh, can read about it, where they say, you know, the church is kind of going backwards. Why? Well, because our culture convinces us that sin is no big deal. I'm okay, you're okay, everybody messes up. So let's not get too carried away. And so each person defines for themselves what's wrong, what's right. Uh, we become our own standard, our own rule book, our own definition of what sin is about. And uh, naturally what we do is we excuse, we justify, we blame, we ignore, because we like feeling good about ourselves, and sin convicts and makes us feel like dirt. And so we'll do all that we can to get guilt away from us and excuse, justify, blame. Did you know that my kids, the moment they could say a word, uh, when we would say, who ate the cookies? All eight kids. Not me. I didn't do it. You think, where did that come from? Who taught them that? They're born with it. You're born with it. We're all born with it. We deny sin. We excuse sin. We justify sin. We blame others for the sin that we have. And we just do that. And so full conviction, that is, the more convicted we are about our sin, the more power the gospel has in our life. Luke 18, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. It was the issue of our sin and what we think about it and how we deal with it. Ezra 9, 6, and I said, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads. Our guilt has grown even to the heavens. We like to compare ourselves with others, and there's always others that are way worse than we are. Uh, and Ezra was comparing himself to God in his level of holiness. Psalms 40, verse 12, My iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to see. They're more numerous than the hairs of my head. My heart has failed me. Psalms 41, 4, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned. I have sinned against you. Uh, the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells, Luke 15, uh, there were two boys. One of them says, You know, I think I'm tired of working for Dad. I'm going to take off and do my own thing. He says, Hey, Pops, give me my inheritance now. And so he gathers it up and gives it to him, and off he goes, and he blows it. And he's has nothing, and he goes to work for a farmer, and he starts eating the food that the pigs are eating. As a Jewish individual, that's not real kosher, but that's all he can do. And while he's doing that, he says, I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And so the Bible repeatedly says that God loves a broken and contrite heart. God loves a humble spirit that recognizes what the prodigal son did. I've sinned against God. 
Number four, as a Christian, our complacency towards our own sin makes us weak and we don't grow and change. And again, it's just the way our culture is. We ignore, excuse, justify, blame. And you can read all kinds of stuff. It's amazing. Where they say, I mean, you don't want to beat yourself up. You, want to, you don't want to feel badly. You don't want to have low self-worth. And so you need to tell yourself how wonderful you are. Focus on the good things you've done and ignore the bad things. And so where does self-worth come from? It's not a very accurate word. Real self-worth is not self-worth. It's God-worth. It's the worth that God gives you. It's the pleasure that he has in you that he communicates to your heart and soul. So you can have self-worth that comes from winning a contest. You can have self-worth that comes from telling yourself that you're great and that you're really not that bad. You're not as bad as your neighbor or this other dude that you know. You can do that kind of self-talk, but it's not real. It's, it's not lasting. Uh, first big failure that comes into your life, first big trial, it just all blows away. What's real is when God gives it to you, when God says, I'm well pleased with you, and he communicates that to our heart and soul. When you have the pleasure of God in you, then there's self-worth that lasts forever. It's real and it's genuine. And it comes, God says, I love a broken and a contrite heart. I love and will not reject a broken, contrite heart. An individual who looks at his sin the way God does, hates his sin the way God does, confesses it to God, acknowledges it to him, owns it totally, and God completely forgives. You know the cool thing that God said, if you will confess and own your sin without justifying, excusing, blaming, I will forgive you and I will take and separate it from you as far as the east is from the west. I will take it and cast it into the deepest ocean, never to remember it again. But you have to own it uh, in its totality completely. Agree with God about what it is that you've done and not justify or excuse. Revelations 3.15, I know your deeds, this is Jesus speaking, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish that you're cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth because you say I'm rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing. That is, I'm a good person. I'm not so bad. You do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You don't know. You're self-deceived. You, you've sort of brainwashed yourself into thinking you're okay. Uh, you know, the, the credit card thing was embarrassing, but one time... I preached an entire sermon with my zipper down. And uh, somebody afterwards told me, and they said, hey, it was kind of bad. And you know what's really bad is that you have a tendency to put your hand in your pocket. Then it really was bad. <laughs> so after that news several years ago, I always check before I come up here. I told this story to some pastors, and one of them visited here, uh, and he was sitting right about over there, and I'm preaching, and he and we make eye contact, and he goes, just mouth the words, your zipper. And I looked down, and when I did, he busted up laughing. <laughs> you know, it's, you just don't know some things, and that's embarrassing. But to not know your own sin, to justify, excuse, to blame, uh, to allow the world to define who you are and think that you're fine when in fact you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. 1 John 1, 8, If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so again, God gives worth and value to those who think about their life and their sin the way God does. Romans 5.20, the law came so that the transgression would increase. Did I miss a verse? No. What does that mean? Transgression would increase that you'd sin more? No, 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 no. So that you'd be aware of your sin more. But where sin increased, not that you'd sin more, but you became more aware of it. Grace abounded all the more. Did you know that the more sensitive you are to your own sin, the more aware you are of your own sin, that the more you fine-tune your life in pursuit of holiness, the more grace God gives you? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's grace, His power to grow and to change, to be victorious over sin. Number five, our own awareness of our sins and being deeply convicted because of them moves us to confess and repent. Deeply convicted, that's what the Thessalonians had, full conviction of sin. Uh, there was guilt. The Spirit of God's job is to convict us, but we excuse, we justify, we blame, uh, we talk ourselves into, eh, it's not so bad. There's a whole lot of people that have done worse. James 4, 8, draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Talking here about our awareness of our own sin. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. And so I examine my life every night and confess all known sin to God, thoughts, attitudes, words. And uh, sometimes I say, oh, Lord, this is like the 10,000th time I've confessed this. I just feel like I'm powerless. I mean, I'm, do you get tired of this, Lord, this same thing over and over and over again? And there's just this grieving over this weakness um, be miserable and worn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning in the presence of God, and He will exalt you. Six, the depth of our sorrow for our sins and confession of them results in a very, sen a very real sense of being forgiven. See, God works in our spirit and our heart. He communicates joy and peace. He communicates self-worth and strength. But there's one issue. That's our sin. That's the big deal in our life. He is a holy, righteous God. Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty of our sin. And when we take that sort of lightly, no big deal, then um, we don't sense His joy and His peace and His pleasure in us uh, until we grieve and are convicted about our sin the way he, and think about Him the way He does. Then we really are not going to experience His grace and His power to the extent that He'll give it. 2 Corinthians 7, 9, now, now, I now rejoice, not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. A sorrow for our sins. Psalms 51 be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. 
Against you, you only, I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, blameless when you judge. Number seven, the awareness of being forgiven and cleansed by the death of Jesus results in gratefulness, worship, and love. We went on this bicycle trip <clears throat> two months, and almost every Sunday we were in church wherever we were, and usually it was just a close one to where we camped, and so we didn't pick any particular church, and they really varied. One of the churches we went to, I mean, no exaggeration, we came close to doubling their attendance. And when we got in there, the pastor said, did any of you visitors play the piano by chance? Uh, we, nobody did, and so we did worship without, in a little book. Uh, uh, there were songs that I sang when I was in youth group, uh, the, and, uh, and so there was no piano. It just, and it was a bunch of kids. And I worshipped, and I worshipped well. I sang loud. I focused on Jesus and I had a wonderful experience. And then we went to another church that was big, and they had a worship team that was like, I mean, the kind you'd see on television. They were amazing. And, uh, and I worshiped well. There's a lot of people today who fuss about, you know, I hear pastors talking about it. And I think it's too bad that it's about them rather than about God. And when you are, uh, when you're the worst sinner on the planet Earth, at least that's the way you feel. And He has forgiven you of all of your sins. He's washed you clean, totally, separated them from you as far as the east is from the west, buried them in the deepest sea, never to bring them up again, gives you the gift of eternal life. And you have that sense of what He's done for you. There's a, there's a love and a, an expression, and worship becomes so heartfelt directed to him. It's not an issue of being uh, entertained. It's, a, it's just the worshiping God together with other believers for what he's done. Luke 7, 47, for this reason I say to you, her sins. This woman uh, came in and she, and she takes this expensive perfume and she pours it on Jesus and she cries and she wipes his feet with her hair and this uh, Pharisee complaining about it. And Jesus said, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. She loved much. He who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven little loves little. That is, you don't really own, don't confess, don't acknowledge. Oh, there's not much. And so there's little love, little worship takes place in your life. Jeremiah 31, 13. Then the virgin will rejoice in the dance, the young men and the old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy, will comfort them, give them joy for their sorrow. See, when we humble ourselves, God exalts us. When we grieve over our sin, He gives us joy. Psalms 30, verse 5, For His anger is but for a moment, His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, a shadow of joy comes in the morning. Number eight, the communion service is designed by God to stir our hearts, soften it, make us sensitive to our sin and grateful to Jesus. Sensitive to our sin. When I worked on the dairy, you know, I shoveled, cow manure and I buck bales and my hands were calloused and they weren't very sensitive. Now I'm a pastor. I have nice soft hands. <laughs> uh, that, that's a okay deal, but Paul talks about your heart becoming calloused. That is, there's not much sensitivity. You don't even realize what you say and what you think and how you treat people. You just don't have that sensitivity to sin. And uh, the key to that is Every day, 
Examine your life for sin and confess it to God. And don't justify, don't excuse, don't blame. Don't hide your head in the sand. Don't pretend like it didn't happen. Uh, own your sin, confess it to God, and you will grow in sensitivity. You will become increasingly more sensitive. You'll know what you do the minute you say it, the minute you think it, and you will become more and more holy like God is on the basis of that discipline. And the communion service uh, was designed by him to help us become increasingly more sensitive as we eat the bread and drink the cup uh, as an act of worship and, and do it in remembrance of him. He works in us. But in the same way that we worship or do anything, we can do it uh, mechanically without thinking. As Jesus said, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far away. So it would be important to, to really seek him now and draw near to him and want, want very much to feel the depths of your sin and confess it and own it and experience his forgiveness. And so 1 Corinthians 11 I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, the death that he died for our sins. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner should be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. A man must examine himself, examine himself. That is, you think about your sin and confess it. So doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we're going to take communion now. We're going to worship, and while we worship, uh, you can come up as an individual, come up as a couple, as a family, and if you're capable of kneeling, that's great. Uh, if kneeling is difficult, you can stand. There are chairs at both ends that you can seat if you like, and so we'll just take a few minutes now and worship together and take communion, and uh, so when you're here, uh, make sure you say, Jesus, I want to feel the full conviction of sin the way you do about my sin. I want to... Uh, not excuse, not deny. I want to be full of your grace on the basis of feeling the full extent of the conviction of my sin. Want that, and God will do that. And then you own it, you confess it, and he cleanses, forgives, and you're full of his joy and worth and value. It's a great gift that he gives to us. Father, thank you. We love you. And I pray now that as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we will do it as an act of remembering what you've done and that we will own and that we will not deny, will not excuse, will not justify, will not define, will not determine for ourselves what's right and wrong. But we will let you be God in our life, holy, almighty, righteous God. And that we want to become like you. We want to be holy as you are. Help us. And this morning as we eat the bread and drink the cup, work in our heart and our life, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.